Welcome to Waterstone Community Church. In this series, we are delving into the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We will study how Jesus challenges others' expectations of who the Messiah ought to be. As he goes on to be crucified and vanquished death, we will discuss what he taught his disciples along the way. Waterstone is located off of C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Our weekly services are held on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Learn more about us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, Andrew, and John asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that it will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and not never to be equaled again. <coughs> if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this from the fig tree. 
As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch the word of the Lord. Rick and Sue Hagstrom are Waterstone missionaries serving in Central Asia, reaching a people group that we adopted about 20 years ago called the Dungan. And while there are believers among the Dungan people, there are yet uh, no church, there's yet no churches planted. And so we continue to pray and partner with Rick and Sue. One of the ways we do that is through their prayer letters. And if you're not on their prayer letter list, you can contact Paul Joslin, our missions pastor. These letters are very enlightening, not only about the reach of the gospel to this Muslim people group, but even more just for a sense of life in Central Asia. Let me share with you a little story that Rick wrote in his January prayer letter. Over the last week or so, we have been experiencing nightly temperatures approaching minus 30 degrees Celsius. That's about 22 below Fahrenheit. The windshield washing fluid that I buy should be good to minus 40. However, it always freezes up every winter. In talking with a local, we were told that everyone here uses vodka in their cars during the winter <laughs> because of its very low freezing point and because it is so inexpensive. I looked it up on the web and found that vodka freezes at 24, minus 24 degrees Celsius. Well, I thought it can't be worse than the official stuff I've been using, which seems to freeze about 10 below. So I went to the store and bought the cheapest bottle of vodka I could find and poured it into the washer fluid tank. The result? It works great. <laughs> so now, although my car weaves a little bit more than it used to, I have a clean windshield. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. In his final discourse to his disciples, Jesus says these words. At that time, the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory. Understand what's going on here. To prepare his disciples for his soon departure and launching of a new age, a new church, Jesus injects his disciples with eschatology. Eschatology. The study of last things. Regard for the end. Eschatology. And for the last generations of Christians, since that first generation, 2,000 years strong, when Jesus wants to energize his church, 
he brings us eschatology to keep the church from freezing, to keep the church seeing the vision clearly. Eschatology, vodka on the windshield. We left Jesus last week at the temple. He has already three times told his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and there he will be put to death at the hands of the Roman and Jewish authorities. Jesus now has his complete timetable and control over his life and death in his hands. He engages skirmishes with the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, hastening his soon death. He leaves the temple for the last time when one of his disciples remarks on the beauty of Herod's temple. Jesus tells them at that moment, the temple will be destroyed, not one stone left on the other. He not only tells them that, he goes on to describe what life will be like until the destruction of the temple. In other words, from the years 33 AD to 70 AD when the temple's destroyed, the first generation of believers, what will life be like for them? And seeing that sampling, seeing that archetype, we will get a sense of what life should be like for every generation of Christians since. And the way Jesus constructs this sermon it's masterful. What he does is he talks about the present, the first generation, and he uses a phrase, these things. These things are going to happen to you in the first generation. But then he mixes in the vodka. Those days, the, the end of the world, the return of Jesus. So these things are fueled and fed by those days. It's a masterful sermon. We want to take just a dive, a quick dive into it this morning and understand how these things describe our time and therefore we must keep our eyes on those days to come. You ready? What massive stones, what magnificent buildings, the disciple says. In order to understand Jesus' words and response, not one stone left on another, we just need a glimpse of Herod's temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Herod the Great started building it some 50 years sooner. His followers had continued. It was still a work in progress. Herod took the original footprint of Solomon's temple and expanded it to a 35-acre complex, about a mile to walk the perimeter. To give you a sense of the vastness of the building, Waterstone sits on 26 acres of land. So envision almost 10 more acres to the entire site. If we were to talk just about the massive stones, the Temple Mount had a wall, a retaining wall around it, part of which is still visible today. It's called the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. If you were to measure just one stone of this 15-story high wall, here's the measurements. 42 feet wide, 11 feet tall, and 12, uh, 14 feet deep. Estimated to weigh one million pounds. One stone in that wall. We think we know how to move things around. How did they do that? And then if you look at the temple itself, 
There was a part of it called Solomon's Colonnade, and it hung 162 columns at the base, they were wide enough, Josephus says, for three grown men to reach their arms around them and touch their fingers. They were that wide at the base, and they went 40 feet in the air to hold up the roof made of cedar, but covered with gold, silver, crimson, and purple. The architectural intent was to have the roof of the temple look like the sun coming up over snow-covered Mount Hermon. It was beautiful. It was a feat of architecture. It's that backdrop that we hear Jesus say, not one stone left upon another. Now, they leave the temple... Jesus and four disciples cross the Kidron Valley and they go up to the Mount of Olives. The Mid Midrash tells us that from the Mount of Olives, you could look right into the entrance of the temple. There, the disciples ask, Lord, when will these things happen? What will be the signs of this new age when the temple is destroyed? When? And so Jesus begins to lay out life after he leaves the first generation of Christians and moving into what we now call the church age, these last days. What will life be like? Verses 5 through 13, he gives at least five of what Jesse calls in the small group curriculum, not yet signs. In other words, these are the things that will lead up to the destruction of the temple, this great apocalyptic event in 70 AD. More on that in a moment. But what will be the signs leading up to that important event? There's five that describe the first generation of Christians and describe our generation. This is a paradigm for every succeeding generation. There'll be false messiahs. The book of Acts, chapter five, two of them are mentioned right there. We talked about one last week who when the temple tax was instituted, Judas the Galilean led a revolt. He claimed he was the messiah sent from God to lead Israel from out under Roman oppression. There were more. There's another one in Acts 5 called Thutis. Josephus mentions scores of people claiming to be sent by God to lead his people. It was an age of false messiahs, people communi communicating they're from God. There was an age of war and political conflict. Judea, during this 40-year period, was under the thumb of Rome and constantly trying to get out. So Judea was in constant conflict with Rome. But even Rome itself had political tumult. In the year 69 AD, they went through a succession. If you can imagine this with American presidents, they went through a succession of four Caesars in one year, most of them taken out by treachery. You can imagine how that would destabilize a government. And that's exactly what happened in AD 69. And historians say today that Rome was never the same after that year. There's wars, and political conflict. There's natural disasters. In this 40-year period from 30 to 70, there were five massive earthquakes. Two of them were still digging up. You may have heard of them, Pompeii and Laodicea. Five earthquakes. And in this time, there were three worldwide famines. One of them is mentioned in Acts chapter 11 under the reign of Claudius that it said went through the entire empire. Thousands of people die from these famines. 
That describes the age. And then the book of Acts is our commentary on these last two. Persecution of Jesus' followers as they were sent out to proclaim allegiance to Jesus Christ and lift up his name. They suffered for it. Before authorities, Jewish and Roman, they were beaten and they were imprisoned. They were shunned in their neighborhoods for speaking for Jesus. There was persecution of the church. And lastly, the spread of the gospel throughout the world. Now, this one's interesting. In the first generation of Christians, they will tell you, as we'll see in a moment, that they were successful in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's actually the mission and call of every subsequent generation. We want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. In the first generation, they believed that that happened. We believe that this sign was fulfilled before the, the temple fell in 70 AD. We get a sense of this from the disciples themselves, most of whom were sent to different foreign lands. Because of the great transportation system of the Roman Empire, the gospel could easily travel to the farthest reaches of civilization, such that Paul would make this amazing statement in Colossians 1. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Throughout the whole world, Paul says. And then he writes a little later, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The first generation of church believed that in their lifetime, the gospel had gone out to the ends of the known world. So these are the five not yet signs that lead to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. These are the samplings, the DNA of every following generation, including ours. These things are happening still today. So, what was the end of that first generation? What was the apocalyptic event that they're looking for to mark the end? It was the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Jesus describes it this way, chapter 13, verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, and Paul writes an edit, or Mark writes an editorial comment like people who are reading it in his day would understand exactly what he's talking about. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what is this abomination that causes desolation? It's a rather interesting phrase. It's lifted from the book of Daniel. It's mentioned three times, chapter 9, 11, and 12. Daniel is given a vision near the end of the Persian Empire about the next empire, which would be the Hellenistic or Greek Empire. And uh, there was a Syrian general by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 167 BC, as part of the rising Greek Empire, went into Jerusalem, sacked the city, walked into the Ezra's temple and on the place where the uh, burnt offerings were sacrificed, he built an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Abomination, desolation to the Jewish people. And Jesus is taking that language 
from Daniel and that tragic event in the life of Israel. And he's saying, what's coming to the end of this first generation of believers is another dreadful thing in the temple, another abomination. And what would that be? There's room for debate on this. And if you're interested in doing more reading, we can give you books and articles and lots of stuff to read. And there's a lot of discussion. No one is 100% sure what Jesus means and what event he's referring to here with the abomination of desolation. I'm 90% sure, as are most scholars, that he's referring to an event that happened in 70 AD at the end of the first Jewish revolt. And that is when Titus, a Roman general, walked into the temple, set it on fire. I think we have a sculpture of he's carrying, they carried off all the holy things of the temple and they knocked down the walls. They leveled the temple. Rome did. So you have these first generation, all the signs, and it ends in this rather apocalyptic event when the temple is leveled, and to this day, it has not been rebuilt. Abomination of desolation, Jesus says in 70 AD. And As Jesus describes in verses 20 to 23, it was a horrible three-year event from 67 AD to 70 AD, the siege. Luke mentions when he shares the Olivet Discourse of this sermon that Jesus gives that there were standing armies around the city. What Rome did for three years, because the Jewish people were so fierce, they just made a wall, a, a human army wall around the city, and they starved the city to death. Josephus says, his numbers are often questioned, but Josephus, the Jewish historian of that day, a witness to these events, said that over 1,100,000 people died. Most of them Jews. Most of them starved to death. Josephus tells stories of mothers being willing to offer their children to eat, to stay alive. Josephus says that so uh, frequent were crucifixions of any kind of uh, Jewish cultural leader that they ran out of wood to make crosses. This was a terrifically dreadful time. Let's pause here. Take a breath. Tough part of the sermon for Jesus I want to just uh, rub this into our lives a little bit. If this is the way to read this sermon, that these five signs would be present in every successive generation, and that every generation would be looking for an apocalyptic event next to come from God, then these things describe our age. That what we should be involved with are things like preaching the gospel, uh, uh, walking through persecution, uh, showing up in natural disasters and political tumult, and even false messiahs speaking truth. All of these things define our age and describe what we should be aware of and engaged with. Here's my point. You ready? Rub this in. Following Jesus 
does not exempt us from adversity or persecution. Adversity and persecution for the Christian are not exceptions. They are the norm. And the way that the church explodes, the way that the church thrives is by believers being placed into difficult situations of adversity and persecution and speaking the name of Jesus and seeing that witness amplified to the surrounding culture. You see, Waterstone, I think we, me, us, churches around, I think we've lost some of this edge. I think what's happened to us is that when we see adversity, when we see persecution, our typical response, knee-jerk reaction is to fight back with power. And usually it's legislative power. If we can just get the right people into the right offices, we can legislate things and make it okay for our comfortable lives. We fight power with power, when we've been hearing all through the gospel of Mark that believers do not fight power with power, we fight power with love, and we pick up our cross and follow him. We love at all costs. And then we step back after our, you know, elections that changed nothing. And we wonder, why has the vibrancy of Christianity left the American church shores and gone to places like China and Africa where the church is on fire and exploding? It's because they have crosses to pick up. And we avoid them at all costs. We keep our heads down and our mouths shut and enjoy our lives. Jesus says, these five signs will describe every generation of Christianity. And that every generation after the first one should be looking for that next apocalyptic event. And what will that be? The next event to come from heaven. It's in verse 24. Here we go. Buckle your seats. Dorothy Sayers said that when Christians come into worship, there should be seatbelts on the chairs and crash helmets for us to wear. In those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's a quote from Isaiah 13, when God was lining up Babylon in his sights to give them their due. It's called the day of the Lord. It's a thread throughout all scripture, leading to this day. At that time the people will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory there it is that's those days that's the vodka on the windshield to keep us from freezing to keep us seeing the mission there it is the second coming of jesus christ the next thing to happen at the end of our generation and the next generation and the next generation however long the lord decides 
The next thing to happen from heaven will be the return of his son. And that's why 17 times through this message, Jesus keeps saying things like, watch, be alert, be on guard. Remember the fig tree. When you see the leaves start to grow, summer's near. Remember if you're house sitting, the owner could come back at any time. Watch, watch, watch. Are you watching? What does it mean to watch? What does it mean to watch for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Let's just step into that for a moment. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples who actually heard this sermon, reflected on what watch means when he writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Watch, be ready. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. In other words, what Peter's saying, how do we watch? Well, you hurry up and wait. Hurry up. What does that mean? It means you get your life's priorities in order with the king at the top and everything else underneath. Hurry up. Get ready. Have your priorities aligned. Jesus is coming. What does that look like? Well, it looks like Hawaii at the beginning of this new year. When all the people on the island got this text. Missile incoming. Ballistic missile threat. Seek shelter. This is not a drill. And for 38 minutes... They examined every priority of their life. <laughs> if you're a first-time visitor, you know, first thing I want to say is sorry for the intensity of this sermon. Although I'm not, I didn't give this sermon, Jesus gave this sermon first. So, but it's not this intense every week, though sometimes it is. <laughs> Last night at the Saturday service, we had a brand new couple visiting, brand new. I talked to them before the service, preached the sermon. Do the, uh, talked about Hawaii. This is not a drill. They come up afterwards. We were there in Hawaii when this happened. And they said, we've been married 57 years. So our thought was, we always wanted to go together anyhow. Come, let the missiles come. If you had 38 minutes to evaluate every priority of your life, you'd be ready. Are you ready for the end? Are you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to hurry up? Another picture for you. Let me just say again, Waterstone, this is not a drill. When our middle son, Ben, was much younger, this is by Wendy Zoba, who writes in Christianity Today. He had heard more than one sermon about the importance of surrendering our lives to Christ. Ben seemed well attuned to the heart of God. He exhibited the selfless and kind tendencies that would make some, like his mother, that would take a lifetime of sanctification to acquire. So it disturbed my husband and me when Ben stubbornly resisted our invitations for him to give his life to Christ. 
He would offer no explanations. He would simply tell us that he wasn't ready. This resistance lasted for several months. And then one morning, as we sat around the kitchen table eating our Cheerios, little Ben announced that he was ready to give his life to Christ. And he then got up from the table and went upstairs. My husband and I looked at each other, and we followed him. I guess we expected to find Ben on his knees praying to Jesus. We didn't. Instead, we found him folding his Star Wars pajamas into his Sesame Street backpack. We said, Ben, what are you doing? He answered, packing. Why? To go to heaven, he said. We then understood why our child hesitated to give his life to Christ. He thought that in doing so, he would have to leave us and take up residence, literally, with Christ in heaven. We should all possess the faith of our little son. We should have our hearts so fixed on Christ's appearance that the attachments of this earthly life pale in comparison because we know we are aliens and strangers in this world. Let me ask you, is there anything in this life right now, today, in this next 38 minutes, that you love more than you love Jesus? Is there anything in your life that you want more than you want his coming? The first part of watching is detaching from everything that's in the way of fellowship with Christ. Second part of watching if that's the hurry up, this is the wait. Hurry up and wait. What do we do while we're here? What do we do while we're waiting for him to come back for us and restore all things? What do we do? Well, it's a waiting, but it's an active waiting. We have a classic example of Christian waiting in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is chained. He's a prophet. He's in the, chained in the palace uh, guard. And uh, what's going on as he looks around is Babylon is breathing down on the city. They've already pillaged the suburbs, and now they're about to enter the city. Babylon's coming to take down Israel. While Jeremiah is chained and kind of seeing this happen, a word of the Lord comes to him, Jeremiah, by the field of Anathoth. The field of Anathoth was just a few feet from the outside wall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah must have had this conversation. Lord, what? Babylon is coming, and you want me to buy a piece of property? Don't you understand that the real estate market has crashed? Why in the world would you want me to buy a piece of land when Babylon is coming? Here's why. This is what the Lord says. As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more fields will be bought in this land of which you say it's a desolate waste without people or animals for it's been given into the hands of the Babylonians. 
Jeremiah was to be a living example that though we're going through this time and it's going to be dreadful, it's not the last word on their lives. Nebuchadnezzar will not have the last word. What does it mean to wait? It means to detach from anything that's in the way of connecting with Christ. And it means to attach to everything that we need to display to the world that the kingdom of God is near. And so we buy our fields, we raise our families, and we do our jobs, and, and we contribute to the common good, and we live life with one eye on the skies and one eye on the person in front of us. And we wait, and we live, expecting his return. 1958, there was a world premiere of a movie called The Seven, Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman. It premiered in New York City, and in the audience that night was the newly crowned chess champion. You may have heard of him, a man named Bobby Fischer. The plot of The Seventh Seal is on a chessboard. With each scene, there's a chessboard, and they open the seals. And in each scene, these chess moves happen where the medieval knight, the good, is trying to run from the prince of darkness, the black. And they're trying to see who's going to win, evil or good, good or evil. And they make their moves until the seventh seal is opened. And then the prince of darkness looks at the medieval knight and says, checkmate. The screen goes black. The curtain comes down. And Bobby Fischer stands up and says, wait, wait. Didn't he see the pieces on the board? It's not over. The king has one more move. Some of you in this room, there's no kind way to say it. You're old. <laughs> and you think that because you're old, you have nothing left, nothing to offer. Nothing that could help anything in this world. I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The king has one more move. Some of you walked in here this morning dragging your bag of sin around. Something you did last week, something you did 10 years ago and you just drag it around. Shame and guilt. I want to remind you that Jesus died on the cross to take away your bag. You are forgiven. You are free. The king has one more move. I don't know what else you brought into the room with you this morning, but I'm telling you, the king is coming. He's got one more move. He lives in you by his spirit, and he wants you involved in his kingdom agenda. One eye on the sky, one eye on the person in front of us. The king has one more move. And so we end this sermon and get ready to declare with a song in just a few moments. We end this sermon with a prayer that we do this around here occasionally at Waterstone. It's called Quaker Prayer. If you're comfortable, you can leave your eyes open or bow your heads, but put your hands out in front of you with your palms down. This is a posture of letting go. Would you do that right now as we pray? Put your palms out, your hands out, your palms down. 
Jesus is coming back, and we're watching. So what do you need to do to get ready? What do you need to let go of? Do you need to let go of a sin or sins that Jesus has already paid for, and you're the only one holding on to it? Let it go. Do you need to let go of a a fear? Do you need to rebuke a fear in your life because Jesus is king? Do you need to stop controlling a relationship? Do you need to grieve a loss with weeping? Whatever it is, you have a moment here. You and Jesus, who's coming, let it go. Give it to him. Now, if you turn your palms up to receive from the Father who wants to give his children gifts, what do you need? Jesus is coming. He wants us engaged in his kingdom in this world. What do you need? Do you need the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Ask the Father. Do you need power? to open your mouth, to lift your head, to speak the name of Jesus into your work environment, into your family environment, your neighbor. What do you need? Ask the Father. He wants to give his children the gifts because Jesus is coming. Tell him what you need. And now our generation prays as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Our weekend services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thanks for listening.